the Reset Rebel podcast with me, Joe Yule. And I'm kind of looking out to the huge and very beautiful Epithenko white arches, um, which peaking just beyond that, it's, it's actually quite difficult to differentiate the cloud from the arches right now or the sky from the arches because everything is white in Ibiza at the moment. There is no real uh, sense of night and day. It's just kind of dark. Uh, and uh, I'm very grateful that uh, today's guest has kind of uh, managed to brave it through this weather and come and meet me here at San Carlos Church today. And I'm joined by Gypsy Westwood, photographer. Hello. Hi. Good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. Not bad. Like you said, braving it through the weather. I did feel like staying at home and just keeping cosy by my heating. Mm. I mean, it's been blowing a hoolie now for at least a week and um, there's no sign of respite anytime soon, which is quite strange for this time of year. We do get these biblical patches of rain where when it starts, it looks like it's never going to end. But we've got at least, yeah, another week to go. Another week is normally, yeah, and normally by now we, we're heading into nice spring weather. Next week is the change of clocks, isn't it? And by then we normally, it's like heating up, think about taking a jacket off, but it's not happening. Mm. Not yet. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I think it's quite interesting because um, the kinds of people that move to a place like this are people that are really affected by the weather so I feel like not only is it a little bit flat here because of uh, the way it is right now it's also you know the people that really need sunshine to be happy are the ones that live here (laughs) and they're not getting their fix so everyone's a bit a bit depressed how are you doing it does feel like that doesn't it I I, it's hard for me when it's day in day out day in day out I've lived here most of my life but I did do 12 years in London and my memories of London was day in day out of being cold and grey skies and not even rain just grey and I don't like it when that blue sky comes out it is magical you do feel like it's like a something being lifted off your shoulders and then you see the sun and it'll be clear because it's spring it'll be that clean clear blue before we start the summer which is something I need for sure every day come back spirit come back come back spirit come back Well, not only that, but also um, in your line of work, which we're going to get into shortly. But first of all, I mean, I asked you to bring me somewhere that kind of means something to you. And this is very handy because it's it's sheltering us from the rain and the wind. But why, you know, why did you want to, to start this at, um, at the church in San Carlos, which I've not actually spent any time sitting in the foyer here for a, a wee while. So it's quite nice to it feels very serene. Um, I, when you said to find somewhere where I like taking pictures, I had to think very hard because cause I mean, there's no specific place that I like taking photographs. Um, my thing is more people, photographs of people. But San Carlos is the village I grew up in. And um, always to think about what Ibiza means to me is to, is to sort of hone in on places that, that I loved. And we spent many hours playing in this courtyard, in this church. I mean, since I've photographed many a wedding as well in my work, but um, yeah, San Carlos is really deep rooted in my, in my bones, in my history. 
and I mean, we used to get well, we used to get told off by the priest all the time for making too much noise in his courtyard. Actually, and he'd come and grab you by the cheeks and pull them really hard, and <laughs> he was known for it. But uh, yeah, so it's just it's something it's something that's really yeah means a lot, San Carlos and the church. I, I was thinking because I knew the weather was going to be bad, or I thought it was going to be bad, rather than sitting on a cold, blustery beach, which also mean a lot to me because we spent many hours growing up on beaches here but yeah that was the reason to come into the church and it is very they are very beautiful you forget I'm, I mean I'm, I'm not religious but um, the architecture I mean look at just that line there of the Sabina roof it is very beautiful what, what is a Sabina roof for someone that doesn't really know what you're talking about oh so the that all that wood there is um, uh, wood that's grown, I think, natively to Ibiza, a tree that grows very straight, as you can see with the beams, and very hard. It's very hard wood, and the tree's called Sabina. And in all the old houses, that's what they used on the roof. Then you see the slats, and above that is seaweed as insulation. And then they have the cement on top, yeah. So that's like, this is a traditional... Um, Ibisenkan roof which you would have had in all the old houses that have now over years been done up and a lot of them done up exaggeratedly fancy but they they would have had originally had these um, these roofs I'm really glad I asked actually because I, I do remember um, our previous guest from Black Nose Wine talking about the Sabina trees and obviously they're better to have those near your house because actually there was a big fire in San Juan and actually um, Peter Lena, who uh, owns Black Nose Wines was directly affected and the, and the fire came all the way up literally to his front door and, and he was um, going to get rid of those and leave the Sabina trees so actually you've, you've just reminded me but I think, it's, I think it should be a law that they have all houses with roofs like that here still because it's it's so, you know, as you said, reminiscent of, of the older the older times and the houses that I have spent time in, including my own retreat house for three years, have the exact same roof. So has that got posidonia on the top of it when you say seaweed? Yes, seaweed, yeah. They, which is illegal now. They can't use the seaweed. But that's what, in the old days, they used to... Yeah, so they're not allowed to take the seaweed out of the sea anymore, although they do. You see them clear it on the beaches in the summer, but then that pile of seaweed has to go back on the beach at the end of the summer. And that's them getting away with not taking it away. But yeah, <laughs> this, if you lived in a house, I don't know if you, I mean, they're it, probably out here, you don't smell it so much, but it has a really distinct smell, the Sabina wood. And it's really hardwood, so it burns really slow. So if he had, a, I suppose it's probably protective. I mean, they're, they're, I think they're protected now. But to, like, you can go when some, they're doing up houses and they take them away, they sell them, it's like gold. They're really, they're worth lots of money, Sabina beams but yeah they should keep they should keep them they, but they a lot of the time they paint over them in the house which takes away the smell and you know when they modernize all those houses people don't want wood they want white or whatever but um no it's beautiful and, and in a small um entrada which is a the living room of the traditional houses it, you i mean it's the smell that's really distinctive that you that you have from the Sabina we, with the house I grew up in I grew up in a finca up the hill in San Carlos and I remember you could hear the rats and mice going living in the seaweed and eating it until they'd finally gone fall through and then you have them falling in I actually had a, a full-on bird's nest actually in my my old house up in San Vicente that I lived in for three years and it was like 
it was bad actually because there was one point there were so many nests that all these babies kept actually falling out of the nest and the retreat guests would wake up in the morning and there'd be dead babies like or babies that were very badly injured and it became like a quite a depressing theme of each retreat that these poor little babies kept dying and I was feeding them like little grains of couscous off of like chopsticks and things to try and keep them alive but it it never ended very well and it was actually quite heartbreaking god that's horrible poor and then well then a lot of people aren't you know they want rustic but they don't want that much rustic when they're coming here for a retreat so they're probably a bit like oh people get a bit um shocked by nature when you come in from a city as much as they want to come to Ibiza to experience all of that it's probably probably too much to go really there Tell us a bit more what it was really like growing up in San Carlos, like, what, 40, 40 40-something years ago? 40-something, yes. (laughs) Um, uh, Growing up in Ibiza was a luxury, in my opinion. I mean, I I got to experience both Ibiza and um, London because we left at 12. And in those 12 years living in London and experiencing and making friends with kids who'd grown up in the UK I realised how lucky I was to have had um, the childhood I had here it was serene so young so how are you to know no no you're a carrier a carrier of the light inside of you we were I mean it's something that I've always I mean there's a lot of us there's a there are quite a few there's a there's a family of us I mean, it's a big extended family that all grew up here. Um, and I actually now, coming on, we've, a lot of people sort of, they, they can pick up on the negative sides of their childhood, but the most of us know that we had a very, very good upbringing. It was, we were lucky, very lucky. It was, there was a lot of freedom, um, which I think still exists. That's why I, I came back to bring up my son here. I mean, he was born here as well. But... F- and I think he still has a freedom, even though it's completely different. I mean, it's so different now. But, yeah, we just had a lot of freedom. And um, I suppose, I mean, in retrospect, I can see that it was just really beautiful and easy. And um, we went to the school, which is now Mourn International School in Santa Catrudis, but it was in San Carlos, it was just outside San Carlos, Mourner Valley. And it was just like a big family. The teachers were parents, the parents were teachers, everyone was friends. You know, you had a community between kids and adults that was all integrated, um, which I remember when I went back to England, it was such a shock that I had to say miss and miss sir to the teachers and that it was such a separation. And I remember I got told off in the first week for talking, what they said, talking back to a teacher, but I was just sort of, doing what I'd done all my life, which was talk to the teacher's parents. And so, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a big difference. But uh, Ibiza, I mean, what was... I suppose it was just the sense of freedom and ease that was really beautiful about growing up in Ibiza. Um, innocence, I suppose. Now, if I, I've got a 14-year-old son, 
and I think we were all a lot more grown up a lot earlier. He's thankfully, I'm happy about it. You know, a little he's still holding back to on his childhood and being a kid. Whereas here, I think the kids grew up very early, and by nine, ten, they were doing, you know, what maybe in the UK, 15, 16, they were doing, feeling, you know, they were, that's it was kind of that. I suppose a lot of people would say wild as well. But why do you think that, you know, that kind of development into that kind of, I guess, exploration happens a little bit earlier on an island like this one? Um, I, but because I think there was that the, the we were all I suppose we were sort of exposed to a lot. We were within the adult community as one, so you know it wasn't sort of this big separation. So I suppose people were able to be yeah see it all. We saw everything earlier and open and parents who spoke to us more like adults I mean that's what my husband always says oh you were spoken to like an adult from a very young age you know like and in a respectful way but rather than just like you're a child and you're an adult and that's a separate thing which is difficult because there's boundaries that you know I mean a lot of people I know probably felt that the boundaries were overstepped in a negative way you know and not they weren't looked after as children instantly but I mean, but I don't know. I have I have a very very like close attachment to my upbringing in Ibiza, and and I know that a lot of people are like the people like for instance my brother. He lives on the mainland. He doesn't live here. But when he comes back, there's always this sense of home, even when you live away. And, and the same within lot. I mean, I have friends who have just come back from the states and Australia, and it's like they land home. They you know they have a parent here and. Yeah, you always have that sense that you're that you're arriving in your home. I mean, I made it home, coming back 20 years ago after all my studies and travel. Um, and what do you think made your parents move here in the 70s? Because your dad was a photographer as well, and your mother was a, a fashion designer. She was, yeah, she was. I, I th- there was the, well, there was a, a, they were in the south of Spain at first in the 60s. That's where they met in Marbella and Estepona. How did they meet? I think they I think in a bar. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was, I think it was just like they were in their 20s hanging out. It was quite a small community of foreigners living in Estepona um, and Malaga and Marbella at the time. And yeah, they were, just, there was, there was, a, they were all creatives. You know, I mean, if you think in the, leaving the UK in the 60s was, and hitchhiking, they, I mean, hitchhiking, traveling across Spain, getting out of, you know, the mainstream, as they put it, there was probably a certain attraction between a community in a small place in Spain. Spain was quite, still quite third worldy then. I mean, it was, you know, you still had sewages on the streets and it wasn't done up at all, is when it, I mean, it's like the whole um, built up parts of Spain has happened in the, since then, since the 60s, you know, all the cost, costas with their big hotels and and I think um, 
so for them it was like yeah it was getting away from you know jobs marriages houses you know the the main mm. what i think a lot of their peers were doing buying mortgages sticking jobs nine to five they were you know they were sort of, and then in ibiza it seems like when you talk to that whole generation it was sort of like word of mouth spread even though they didn't have the internet and they didn't have they didn't have um mobile phones through some manner word of mouth spread about oh this place this place this place you should go and check it out and so yeah they i mean there was always an influx from i think 50s of foreigners coming to land on the island and get involved I mean, I met this woman the other day, and she came really, really, I can't remember, it was really early, 50s, on her own with her two kids. Her husband worked somewhere in the Middle East, and she didn't want to hang out there. She said she just got a finca in the middle of nowhere in Sanan, and uh, spent the summer, got very brown with her Ibiza basket and her two kids in tow. And it was very, you know, it was very much like that. It was easy living rather than, I think, sort of the rat race of the countries that they're all from and then a lot of people I think there was you know escaping from Vietnam the, a lot of the Americans here were getting out of going to war um, and and then Germans coming away from their whole history I think that you know if you find and just it was a creative place so if you were a writer an actor um, photographer I think it was a cool place to come and hang out amongst your own peers. That's what I've understood from then. They came in the 60s, saw it, left, went back to London. They had my brother. Um, they'd started making clothes then. My mum started making clothes. In, they lived in Battersea. And then they were coming in their van. They had a, the VW with my brother and pregnant with me for the summer. And they stayed, my mum stayed 12 years. <laughs> Yeah. So it was, I mean, it was, I think it was just, um, and they knew one person, they arrived, it was very much arriving, having to walk everywhere, you know, they, it was all very primitive, but they all wanted that primitive, the primitive um, lifestyle, more primitive lifestyle. Why do you think Ibiza attracts this kind of creative crowd? Because I think, you know, a lot of people come here to write books or they come here to paint or they come here to, you know, there's a lot of photographers here um, as well, as well as yourself. <laughs> Why do you, I mean, obviously the light is quite an obvious one. I mean, the not today, clearly, but usually there is a magical, you know, bright white light, which I assume is why it's called the, the White Island. But I mean, you know, what, what, what do you think that could be down to? The, I mean, I, I've always because I'm in with with my job and um, with the weddings that I photographed over this these these well, it's twenty years now. I meet a lot of people who come for a reason, and they come. And, I mean, they come to get married here, but they come with a reason. One of the couples or both the couples always have some attachment to here. They've been coming all their lives. Their parents had a house here. They met in Pasha space. One of them, you know, when in their 18 and their 20s, but there's all and they, but they come back and they come back and they come back, you know, for their holidays. And I always, I mean, there is some, and the, the cliche is there's some kind of magic in Ibiza. I mean, that's what everyone talks about, you know, and the whole thing of Esvedra and the pool of Esvedra. But I believe that there is some. I mean, I think it's to do with the locals, to do with the Ibicenkos. Um, there. 
their personalities, their characters, because it's very different from Menorca and Mallorca, and the kind of people that settled, the foreigners who settled in both those places is very different from, you know, there's, a, there's an eclecticness of, of the people who come to Ibiza. And um, so there must be, I, I think there, there, there's something about the Ibisenks' openness to have allowed it in the first place back then, and to, yeah, and to allow that integration. Although there is quite a separation and they have, but they, you know, they, they, they opened up and sort of allowed their thinkers, started renting their houses to, to the foreigners, um, opening their bars to the foreigners. I think that, you know, and I mean, I know people who married Ibithenkos and sort of integrated their life in, properly into the Spanish life. And so it must be something to do with how their characteristics of being willing and to have all these foreigners come to their land and um, open-minded to allow for what happened as it did slowly with with the music scene, with the art scene, with, you know... Because, they, you know, they're not necessarily, you know, the same... The, I mean, now... They're not the ones who are in the clubs raving. I mean, there are many of them, but it's a. But it wasn't then. It was you know a lot of the foreigners who started up all the bringing all the musicians. And I know you did a podcast on when Bob Marley came. You know, and that was always you know outsiders' influence as well bringing it. It was so fascinating to me actually for for that uh, episode on Valentine's Day. I think it was in 2020. But I. It was quite, you know, that was in 1978. But I remember, like, being told there was this mosaic and that, you know, this bull ring was in Espratet. And I'm not joking. I must have walked about around the town looking for that place for over an hour just trying to find it. And it's it's quite hidden. You would never really think that there was a bull ring there. But there's so many things that have happened in Ibiza. And obviously, we have this kind of blueprint of how it looked back then. But when you try and figure it all out these days, I mean, you know, obviously, things have changed quite dramatically. Very dramatic. There's, well, I, for me, actually, before the whole 2020 pandemic, I sort of started getting the sense that it was changing too much. And I was, um, so I'd say I was sort of back in 2020, I was thinking, oh, this last five years has just really gone off the scale. I mean, even Coca-Cola had Ibiza as one of their cans, you know. It just become this brand. And it started freaking me out a bit. And I was thinking, God, can I, will I really be able to live here my whole life? like many of um, my parents' generation have. You know, is it going to be possible? Is it going to still keep, you know, because it was exploding, exploding. I mean, not just traffic, just just the fame of and, and the expense and the kind of places and every, every hotel wanting to have an Ibiza section in their brand and 
I mean, I don't know how many five-star hotels have opened in the last seven years, and how do they fill all, you know? And I was questioning all of that, and then the pandemic happened and stopped it all, which I think has been a really good reset for the island and just brought it all back a bit. You know, there's things that have been lost, which is very sad for many people. It's struggled, and there's other businesses that have gained, but... I think it's made everyone stop and think and wonder. I mean, saying that, the same, it feels like it might explode this summer again. <laughs> we'll see what happens. If you get down and you quarrel every day, we're singing prayers to the devil's I swear. See, it changed massively, obviously. There's motorways, and I remember when they were going to build the motorway, and we were all like, we don't need a motorway. Why do we need a motorway? It's fine. And now you wouldn't live without the motorway getting to the airport. Um, you know, things like that. And for, for my parents' generation, you know, this was all, all through San Carlos and up and to Cala San Vicente, which you said you lived over there, and to San Juan. It was all dirt roads. You know, there was... Uh, there's the church again. Um, there was... I think a main road from here to Santulalia, Santulalia to Ibiza town, Ibiza to San Antonio and Ibiza to San Jose. And the rest was all dirt roads. And so they watched, you know, all the little roads slowly become asphalted and tarmacked and, and that side of it um, change. And it does, I mean, it just, you know, in each beach and beach bars and what got put on, you know, done up what got taken away except that the one of the ones that's been there forever since I was a kid is in Kalanova well that's not probably one of the ones there's probably a few but that one is still it's moved different spots of Kalanova on that end you know do you know the beach bar yeah but that's been there forever long may it continue it's literally my favorite place in the world <laughs> that is actually where I go when I want to like hide the bluefish shack. Yeah, and I sit there and shack. eat a few sardines, drink a, ho- a horrible glass of the cheapest, nastiest white wine that's probably about five euros a glass. And it's tiny and it's really bad, but I just can't resist sometimes but sit there with, with a glass, with my feet in the sand on a plastic chair yeah. with a plastic table. I'm kind of upset that I'm actually sharing this now on a podcast, <laughs> but it is a good spot. It is. That is one of our favourite spots. We just spent the last... Um, 10 years with growing up our children there was a big grump, uh, group of us always on that corner of the beach with the kids because it's so easy with the car drive with all your stuff but also because of that beach shack which is still basics back to basics and I and I hope that it doesn't you know because slowly they are all getting done up Las Dalias they got done up I mean I know the club apparently looks really cool but we used to have our school plays in there and you know there's a there's a sense it was funny you know um Cancronet on the way to San Juan they did that up and um I was in the supermarket next door but when they started doing it and I was like oh my god why are you doing that up saying that to the woman in the shop I mean that is just that's our that's our childhood you're getting rid of our childhood and she was like well you can't live off memories can you or you can't do business off memories. And I was like, oh. That place was Ramajam 24-7, no matter what state it was in. It was like, you know, that was a kind of an institution. And I don't like the way they've pimped it up now. It's like, just like every other Ibiza bar, it looks all fancy. And the outdoor terrace is all completely changed. And I, do you know what? I've had one coffee in there since they pimped it. And I, I just don't really feel the same, that sense of familiarization and homeness that I, I had there previously. And also bumping into like half the island 
who I don't think are really going there these days. I feel like I almost want to boycott the fact that it's been, you know, it's been brought up to this level, as you said, of the five-starry kind of, you know, vibe of the island. It was one of those little pockets of, um, yeah, a bit like Baranita around the corner from here. It's had the same kind of feeling for me. And that, yeah, just doesn't hold that same kind of moment that I used to have in the morning at like 7.30 on the way to the pool, which is nearby, where I'd sit there, read the Spanish paper, the Diario de Ibiza, and just be surrounded by people actually talking Spanish. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's compl- I don't th- I think all the, like you said, the group that you could always know that you'd b- bump into don't go there anymore. I mean, they made it look like an airport cafe, didn't they? Where's the, new, where's the new cool hangout then for that kind of feeling, apart from Baranita, which is literally, again, one of my other absolute favourites. I go there at least once a week for dinner. I don't know. That's the thing. I think it's a, there's a massive lacking of it, and that's the mistake. I mean, we were saying that would be that would be the end if they took away Baranita. If they did that, to, which I don't think they do, because there's some of the kids are working in there, and hopefully they see that the authenticity of it is what keeps it going, and that's what people love about it. And it is packed. I mean, in the summer, it is heaving, isn't it? You can't get a seat. But yeah, no, that is... Uh, Baranita is where we had our telephone, our TV, our bar, our suites, our, you know, our post box. That Baranita was where we grew up. I mean, it was my dad watching f- football and sports. We watched the cartoons that were, all, you know, if we could stand there, the TV was up in the corner. It was, wasn't anything comfy. you just stand there because we didn't have TV at home. The phone was, which they still have the box with the phone in the corner, that any phone call you wanted, you had to go and you made an appointment with the person via the last phone call you had, I suppose. And so I'll be there at six o'clock on Monday and you went down and had your phone. Oh, it's ringing. It must be them. Um, The post box, that was our post box. And then they had, you know, because, I mean, it was so different. Then snacks and sweets and, you know, were, were like gold for us. And they had like the four rows of Mars bars and crunchy bar. I don't know what it was. It was just like three kinds of chocolate. So you'd sit there and donuts, jam donuts. That was and that was yeah. So Anita's bar was our yeah. We I mean we spent our childhood in Anita's bar. That would be tragic if someone tries to think they can come pimp that up and get rid of what it is. It'd be so sad because. You know, even like Las Dalias, like not many people know that that was the first club on the whole island. And I think to have changed it, I mean, I haven't even been yet to Akasha. I guess I, it has been on my list of things to try, but I, there's a slight sense of resistance there. You know, when Nightmares on Wax used to put those nights on every Thursday in the summer times, I feel that vibe of like, kind of like the weed smoking reggae kind of cool you know but not too cool crowd they're actually more well the San Carlos kind of crowd that exists here now but I feel like even having gentrified that particular part of really what is Ibiza heritage it's like you know the, the hippie market and yeah that that non-pretentious kind of sensation that you get as soon as you drive into San Carlos of everyone's just here to eat you know local kind of good food but not spend you know 50 bucks on dinner every time they go out the door it's just like it's got a real a homecoming feeling and that's why I was so happy that you chose um, to yeah to sit here today which is absolutely glorious I can hear the sound of the pitter patter of rain starting up and it getting in the distance and, and the fact that they're even building a roundabout we don't even want to talk about that one in San Carlos what's that all about? We don't know they love their roundabouts in the wrong places they did, they did that on the San Juan road they put one at the end of our road completely irrelevant non-necessary and then down where they need it next to Canapapeta where that could do with a decent roundabout because everyone's turning off San Carlos 
there's a dodgy turning where I'm sure hundreds of car crashes. So yeah, they, that's that's silliness. But it might might be to do with the buses. I don't know the roundabout because when I was a kid, the buses to going to S Figuerella and all the beaches that way used to have to go round that bend. Uh, and sometimes it was just like chaos and people on their seats outside the bar having to move and get out the way. And it was like, so maybe it's to do with bringing, bringing the tourists to this side of the island. I don't know why they build your roundabouts. But it very much is the sense of, yeah, coming home, this, you know. And, but I, I have that sense of the, nor- it, the north of the island being like that. And I know maybe it's because I grew up here. And I remember when I moved back 20 years ago and started working, a lot of my work with the weddings were down in the south and it literally did feel like I was going to another somewhere I'd never I didn't know it it wasn't for now it's very familiar because I've been over there so many times but just even the roads it was like this whole other part I mean it's ridiculous how because people from afar think that the island's so small but once you live here mm. that side of the island is miles away and you think ah. Oh, to go over there, I mean, I never go to the beach over there because that's like 40-minute drive to go to the beach. You must be joking. You know, it's easier just to stay here. So, um, yeah, and so uh, this side always has that feeling, I think, also because I grew up on it. But it does still have, I suppose it's left less done up. There are less properties up here that, you know, if you look into the hills of San Carlos compared to the hills of San Jose, there's less houses you know, it's it's not as mainstream. All the beach bars are, although they're coming, aren't they? They're trying. I mean, Ayana opened, and that's all swanky, and then Bless on Calanova, and we don't. We'll see what happens. I mean, it is coming round the coast slowly, but I think much slower. And that's one thing I think the pandemic did was slow down them trying to gentrify this side of the island. Las Dalias, I mean, I think it will still keep some of its essence and, the, I mean, for somewhere to go, because there just isn't up here, I think it might, I mean, it might work. It might be quite nice to have, um, I mean, I haven't been in and I'm not a raver and I don't go out, so I'm not like chomping at the bit and really excited, but I can see that, I mean, I know amongst the young, like 20, 25, 30-year-olds, you know, who all live on this side of the island, so my friend's kids have all grown up they're, they're all happy that it's here because it means they don't have to go into Ibiza town or San Antonio which is where they all hang out so it's somewhere they can all go so in that way maybe it will make it, it I think it will be quite local local customers going there we'll see we'll see how they do this summer we will I think it'd be quite interesting I mean I, I know that some of the guys from Sonica that I used to work with have um, taken over the curation of that Eagle Manahuan and uh, a friend of mine um Shams, who also is um, working alongside him, so you know it's interesting because I was in Tulum actually a few weeks back, and it was it was the same same thing. You know, I went there like 25 years ago, and you go back to a place kind of not knowing what to expect, and it was yeah, I mean, just not even not even somewhere I would ever consider returning to on that basis. But it was interesting because there's a real corridor it seems between there and um, Ibiza and actually I saw Igor on the lineup for Akasha and then two days later he was on the lineup at, at somewhere around the corner um, in Tulum and, and I know that you know the boys do do that at Sonica they go out to South America and they've got some very interesting stories about the uh, <laughs> yeah the drug dealers over there which I found really quite scary and mildly morbidly fascinating about what what can happen but um it's interesting isn't it how those two places are quite linked and I think Go is a little bit the same and there are a few little spots um around the world that you know kind of um attract 
exactly the same type of people and um, that's kind of like an interesting thing I'm not really sure how I would describe who those people really are I think do, do you I think well it's the seasonality of the island is a massive take on that so everyone comes here does their summer I think with India it was also because I mean a lot of people back back made their living and like my mum was one of the first people to have a stall in the big Escanar market which they call hippie market and then she was one of the first people to have a stall in the hippie market in Las Dalias and um, she actually made all her clothes but at the same time there were many people who would go and spend their winters in India and buy and come back and sell here and they still do I mean India Thailand there's still many people go to Bali India and Thailand now and get their things made or they make them themselves or they go and buy over there and sell um, in the markets. So I think that sort of is part of the corridor. With Mexico and Tulum, I don't know how it happened. I was there as well in 2007. And um, I remember at the time we, well, we were quite surprised when we went because we were so used to traveling in Asia. So it it wasn't sort of as cheap and cheerful they weren't as friendly as the Indians it was all quite like you said it was all this drug thing that you could really feel the underlying sort of back end of that whole scene but yeah Tulum was only just start the actual beach of Tulum was just starting to get the yoga places and the sort of more upmarket and I've heard since I mean I don't think I'd ever go back there I've heard since that it's just off the scale with beach bars and loud music and just mainstream tourism but saying that tons of people from here go all 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 winter they have been for the lot because they've been open haven't they through the whole pandemic well that's what's encouraged the the gang war it's like so they basically made mexico or that maya riviera which is the cold coastline between cancun playa del carmen and onto tulum like a place where you could just go without obviously having any vaccines or passports or tests or anything at all and then when they threw the doors open obviously that encouraged the party scene to to open up and explode i think and all the party people i think globally were going there because it became a real hotbed of like um big party um you know good djs and the same kinds of lineup really that you were seeing over here in ibiza in the summer and then obviously what comes with that is um yeah drug warfare basically and literally like as soon as i got there the day i landed two people were shot like right around the corner from my my hotel and it got like um bordened off it was like the art hotel in tulum sort of you know by down by the beach and you know a friend of mine manu gonzalez had just literally played there like a couple of days like a couple of weeks before and and then it wasn't even open it was just cordoned off with police tape and i think you know a lot of tourists in the you know the previous year we were even getting caught up in the crossfire and it did make me start to feel a little bit like uh yeah a little bit kind of tenuous about going out after dark anyway let's get off the drag uh, the drug warfare and talk about photography because um yeah one of the reasons i thought it would be really lovely to talk to you is that i did actually do um an a level in the history of photography and um and a sort of like part of my degree was photojournalism so i kind of you know did have a little dip of my toe into the world of like henry cartier bresson and um yeah all sorts of you know the the camera Leica and um yeah lots of other little i can't even remember half of it now i'm too old but <laughs> back in the day it was you know something i was really really interested in so when did you you know when did you start to realize that you had a real fascination with you know capturing images i guess an island like this kind of lends itself to capturing beautiful pictures 
Well, I well I left the island at twelve and went back to London to study. And so, I mean, we'd been so the house that I grew up in in San Carlos on the hill. Um, my dad always had a, one of the he had one of the outrooms as a dark room. Mm-hmm. So we'd always spent. I mean, I both my brother and I remember hours spent inside the dark room, darkening it all out with the tape for him, and moving the chemicals while he you know he would be printing, and we were allowed to you. Did you ever, have you ever been in a dark room? Yeah, so like moving the chemicals over the prints and developing them, hanging them up on the line while they dry. So it was always part, from a very young age, um, part of our life. I, but the, an actual interest, like as, as, as it became a career, I don't, don't really think I had any realisation until I was at, um, like you, I did... I did A level. I did A level in visual arts. So my GCSE, I remember enjoying art a lot. And then I did an A level in visual arts and Spanish and German. And during the A level, I realised I couldn't stand writing. And I thought the last thing I want to do. I mean, languages obviously from having been here was um, something another direction. But I was I, I was thinking if I was going to go to university, I couldn't stand the idea of three years of writing. And submitting essays so and 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 the visual side of you know the art was where I was always getting my grades and it just felt felt natural my dad gave me a camera when I was like 15 16 one of his old film cameras so I used to shoot go around shooting photographing a lot of architectural sort of in shapes which I still see that I see when I'm out and on my iPhone I love straight lines horizon the contrast between the blue and the white um and then around london you know just street i suppose what now gets it's all been so labeled and but street photography and um but it was and then so then i went on to do a foundation at chelsea um having had a year off or did i have a year off after the foundation and it just sort of progressed into doing more an art art direction within my studies uh, I was doing more painting at the, the foundation but in the year and then I had a year off after and in that year off I spent a lot of time with the camera lots of sketchbooks but not painting big things and when I went to my interview to Middlesex University which is where I did my degree I had loads of slides and I think that was one of the things that got me in was I had sheets and sheets of, that, of shooting slides because I'm rubbish at interviews um, I'm rubbish at talking about myself, actually. I don't like it at all. It's one of the things that it's become as a photographer now, especially, you know, with Instagram, it's all about talking about yourself and putting yourself in front of the camera. And I find it so hard because my thing is the actual pictures and being able to take them and and feeling that that's where my skill and talent lays. But um, so anyway, I got I did get into university and I was but I got in to do I was going to start doing painting and they'd given me my studio section of the campus and I started painting. I had one film that I hadn't developed from the summer and I went downstairs into the photography department and literally never left. That was it for three years. I developed that film and I was sitting there printing one picture on it. And the technician, actually, who was who who basically was really in the end, was what inspired me and was my tutor within the three years at university. He um, he was like, oh, you should print that really big, that photograph. Print it really big. 
and I did. I printed it really big and small and we did loads of different options of it and, and it was just straight away an affiliation with him and a couple of other students there and it felt right and it felt like and it was like and it literally didn't go back to the painting bit and I spent the, the three years doing photography in that fine art degree and that was a luxury I see in retrospect now having three years of you know especially then it was still we didn't have to pay it was all free <laughs> and you had studios and dark rooms and printers and you had to pay a bit of paper and you know I mean it was amazing it was so and fun using the lights, messing about, doing what you want. There was, you know, it was not a lot of guidance, which I think was really cool. And then you had to sort of submit your work once in a while and talk to a tutor once in a while. And But it was just like the freedom of being able to be creative and have fun amongst your peers, which was great. And it led, it led on from that. I mean, when I left, during the last year, I was assisting two photographers um, who were lifestyle and portrait photographers in London. And, but then the daunting idea of actually trying to make a career in photography in London at the time was so scary. I mean, I was very shy. I wasn't very forthcoming. It was such, it's quite a cutthroat industry to get into. I mean, my dad was a fashion photographer in Madrid for years, and so I'd assisted him throughout my teens as well. And I, I mean, that sort of industry freaked me out, just the producers and the models, and it was also sort of not my world. And so, and then we decided to go travelling, and, and I left with a camera, and I f did lots of photographs as we travelled. But it was nothing really. I mean, I, yeah. By then, I mean, it, did I know that I could make a career in it? Not really, or a living. I mean, I was, you know, when we travelled and lived in Australia, I was babysitting and working bars and doing what everyone else did, not sort of driving myself to think I'd be a photographer. And I, I, it, it happened very organically how I ended up making my living. I think the thing is, though, is that you've also been through what I was potentially about to go through, which is when I did the A-level degree, and when you're talking to me about this darkroom experience, that's exactly why I fell in love with it. It was, like, such a beautiful thing and such an incredible opportunity at that moment in time. But then by the time I went to uni, everyone was, like, taking these digital pictures. And, that, and that's really, you know, that was, like, what, 1997 when I started and I had the option to go on to the full-time photojournalism degree or take the actual journalism degree, which is what I ended up doing, because I didn't really think that I could completely change. And But you've had to adapt. You've gone through one and then completely moved into the world of digital photography, which is, like, massive. Yeah, that was I, that happened here. I remember buying my first digital camera in Ibiza town, actually, in Valladolid. Um, and but I, th I think, and I actually think that's another. It's a luxury to have been given the opportunity to learn photography through film, through which I do think is very much a real way of learning it because you learn the actual uh, the you learn what's behind photography, which is using light and how you're adapting your camera to bring that light into the film and adjusting your the settings on your camera to change your photograph. And I, I see through uh, having an hour worked and had lots of... I've had quite a few girls come and work with me who are learning photography or, or have a skill of photography, but, you know, they're all a lot younger, so they've started on 
digital and it's a whole different knowledge base they have and sometimes I, mean, I remember I'm, and ignorantly thinking well you know they know and then like a year in and like well you do understand that by changing the f-stop you're changing and they're like no I just look at the back of the camera you know so it and that's um, and and funny enough in the last I think it must be I don't know how many years but maybe five six seven years film photography became really fashionable again there's a camera, I think it's a contact, I don't actually know the, the number of it, but a contacts, it's a medium format camera that went from you could buy it on eBay for a couple of hundred dollars to being worth thousands because everyone suddenly bought them because film photography. And from when my dad stopped, slowly stopped um, uh, being involved in the fashion world and everything being on film to all the labs closing all over Spain to suddenly labs opening up again and now it's there's labs in Valencia and Madrid and there's a few in London whereas they all closed down from I mean I used to use a couple of labs in London but everything closed Jessops Jessops yeah <laughs> I bought lots of stuff in Jessops I pretty much lived in there in my college days yeah it was like me and my my dad was a photographer as well and he had a dark room and he had a studio so I was able to do all my portraits there and learn how to use those big old umbrellas for lighting but I just feel like all the magical things that I loved about photography completely yeah it just completely changed it changed it was um Lady just uh, having a quick sweep of the floor under our feet. I feel like we need to put our feet up. And we used to when we were kids and my mum was cleaning the kitchen floor. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, it is changed. But then there's a huge skill in, I mean, the, you know, it doesn't take away the skill in digital either. Um, it does feel like it's, it, it means that digital photography has made it very easy to become a photographer because you can rectify your mistakes a lot easier afterwards in post-production um i think in the last few years again with instagram being such a big influence in photography and image-based publicity that that has changed again the whole level of photography and people you know quality of photography like you you mentioned henry cartier bresson which is like you know quality photography 100 percent to quality photography, acceptable photography now is such at a such low level. It, you know, you, you. I think even I've got a one of the girls who used to work for me here. She now works in a studio in in Wales, and she was saying they actually people clients ask, "Can you not do it so it looks like it's just from a phone? Can you not edit it?" So, you know, they want bad quality because people are relating better to bad quality images because we've got so much from our phones and from crappy digital cameras. So it has, I mean, it's evolved massively. And then, you know, the whole thing with filters and being able to, like, with within what I do within the weddings, presets. I mean, there's photographers out there who they just, they can photograph a wedding. They haven't really learned how to edit properly on one of the you know Lightroom Photoshop whichever one they use and because you can just buy presets and they whack you can just send the whole catalogue of photographs through a preset which gives a tone and maybe they'll adjust it a little bit but you know that's oh that that's my that's my technique that's my brand colouring you know whatever the preset is at the moment it's this sort of brown colour that everyone loves 
brown orangey you know you're talking about the white walls and the blue skies of Ibiza mm-hmm. well now I mean if you go into especially within the wedding world there's this sort of brown filter they put on it and so it makes all the white sort of orange and makes the sea a dark color you take away you de- desaturate and put this sort of brown yellow filter I don't like the sound of that I mean I remember the days when a filter was actually a physical lens that I had to add on to the end of my 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 lens and it was like I had to screw it on and attach it and you know that was the most exciting thing that ever happened to me in my 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 photography days and I just feel like everything's just got to instant it's an instant a world of instant gratification and you know the idea of this decisive moment that um Henry Cartier-Bresson always talked about and that was his thing and I feel like that moment has just gone because no one considers whether they should take a picture or not and whether they have to pay for the printing or the the creative process of developing the damn thing because you don't have to do any of that anymore and therefore there is no decisive moment because it doesn't matter because you can just delete it if you don't like it and people take about 20 pictures of everything anyway because they do throw most of them away and I feel like the magic of like you know that sense of anticipation of waiting for a film to come back and even remembering what you even took pictures of like all of those wonderful I mean I don't want to be this person who always oh, way better back then but it was just different it was completely different and I think that things have really really changed I feel like I feel like when I moan like that I go oh my god I show my age <laughs> I'm like you know one of these well, back then it was so much better but there is a sense of yeah the sense of the instant gratification um and so that excitement is lost the sense of yeah for me it's the sense of the quality people just don't care about um quality images and i was actually listening to podcasts because podcasts is what they've saved me over these last couple of years i enjoy so many different podcasts and i was listening to a photographer and he was older than me so he was going back even more and he'd had a really successful wedding business probably all in film and now he was a studio photographer of portraits but he said he said and he does a lot of talks all over the world but he, he said, I, I don't understand now people go out with their digital camera and they, they'll go to a wedding and shoot 10,000 images at one wedding and then come back and edit them down to, I don't know, a few thousand and give that to the couple. And he was like, where's the art of actually looking at the image that you want to photograph and finding a beautiful picture and, and waiting and and getting the picture? You know, so he talked to some other wedding photographers, modern wedding photographers, and said, oh, well, when they walk down the aisle, I just put it on burst, which burst means that it just shoots continuously. So you don't... And then just choose the best one. So there's no... It takes away sort of the the ability to actually try and compose a picture. And I'm really anal now about composition. And it does mean, like, looking through Instagram, people's Instagrams, and, you know, people get... Their, their photographs get recognised not for the quality of the image it's to do with the dress or to do with you know all, you know it's all so quick isn't it what you like on um, oh here goes the church again what you like on uh, on Instagram it's to do they say it's to do with like if you see blues or whites or it's colour and that's why you press like so or to do with uh, how good it, it is the overall image of things isn't as important and that does, I think, digital photography has taken away that because you don't have the art of really concentrating and, and, and um, 
and waiting for your image. Like the, he, Henry Carter Brenson was always famous for seeing the image, the composition he wanted, and just sitting there. And that the famous one with the stairs and the bike going through as a blur was, you know, he waited for ages until the bike went through. Now people just set it up or Photoshop it in. It drives me, you know, I'm, I'm really for real photography and, you know, and keeping, and I find, you know, I'm not much of a, I don't touch people's face up massively. I mean, obviously, if they've got a big spot on their wedding day, it's not very nice, I'll get rid of it. But, you know, it's not, you know, people want all this overdone images and I am a real believer of it, sort of keeping it as you see it and the beauty of what you see and moments that are really happening on, you know, especially with the, with weddings, which is what I photograph mainly to make my living. Um, I just think it's really important to try and tell the story of the actual day, how it was, and not set it up. And so much is set up now. Mm. You know, if they miss it, they set it up. And when I started back here, actually, the first wedding I shot was in this church. So that's And I didn't think about that until just now. But... Um, you know, it was about just getting what happened when it happened. And I remember f- there was quite a few years I used to miss the kiss at the end of the ceremony. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be known as the photographer who misses the kiss because I never got it. But I'd never, I never asked them to do it again. And now people just say, oh, stop, look, I missed the kiss. Can we have that picture? Because they want that picture. You know, it's become important for them to have the pictures they saw on Instagram. I mean, we've had clients who have... You know, they're walking along while we're doing the photos and, say, and having a go at their husband saying, yeah, I showed you the pictures I want on Instagram. I want those pictures. I need those pictures. You know, because they're not just getting married and having their day or, you know. So for me, uh, it's really about making real images of, you know, what beautiful and, and um, nice images, but of what's really there and not trying to sort of, change it too much because so much has changed now it's the reset rebel it's the reset rebel